Hi, this is Christopher Zook. I'm Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Kaz Investments in Houston, Texas, and co-author of the new book, Holy Grail of Investing, with my partner, Tony Robbins. We're pleased to be here on the one-on-one Sports Business Podcast. Hi, this is Dave Almy of ADC Partners, and thanks for checking out this latest episode of the one-on-one Sports Business Conversations podcast. Don't forget, you can always find past episodes of this award-winning podcast at adcpartners.com slash podcast. Now, back in the day, if you wanted to call yourself a sports team owner, one of two things had to happen. You either had to be born into a crazy rich family that already owned a team, or you had to make a fortune somewhere else and buy that team from one of those crazy rich families. But my guest in this episode, Christopher Zook, wants you to know that's not necessarily the case anymore. Here's the deal. Christopher is the founder and CIO of Kaz Investments, one of the largest private equity firms in the world. He's also just written a book with legendary leadership guru Tony Robbins called The Holy Grail of Investing. The book features interviews with some of the world's most prolific and successful investors and reveals the secrets behind their successes, their challenges, and perhaps most interestingly, where they're looking for their next wins. And as it turns out, one of those places is professional sports ownership. In our conversation, Christopher and I talk about how professional sports first got on his radar as an investment opportunity. He also goes into what he's anticipating for the growth of sports businesses and how smart investors can position themselves to take advantage of pro sports. All this and the infamous Reflux Gourmet Lightning Round as well. And as always, thanks for listening. You were an athlete as a younger person. Right. You played football and golf. So I'm wondering to start off, Christopher, can you talk a little bit about how your experience as an athlete maybe helped prepare you for a, a future investing? Maybe not two things that people always put together, but I'm interested in your assessment of that. I think sports and investing actually have a lot in common. Mm. And I really do think that my time as an athlete did prepare me to be a better investor. You know, in the case of football, you got to get kicked in the mouth and be able to get right back up again and do it again. <laughs> that happens in investing all the time. That's yeah. just the nature of the beast. Hopefully not literally. literally. Yeah, hopefully not literally. <laughs> but in the case of golf, it's also, it's, it's, it's so much between the ears. It's, it's more about, in many cases, your psychology than it is actually your physiology and your capability as a golfer. There's a lot of guys that have much better swings than I do, but can't break 80. And it's something to where they just don't have the mental game to be successful uh, in the game of golf. So I do think they both helped me a lot as an investor. Do you think, and I think I recall that you were, you were playing football, you took a class in golf at Texas Tech, and that led you to your first investing experiences and sort of got you familiar with it. What, can you reflect on that for a minute? Just So it's, it, it's a little bit different than that. So I okay. was playing golf. I, I had my second knee injury, had to stop playing oh, yeah. golf or have to stop playing football, excuse me. And I had to take up the game of golf. I was too competitive to not do something. So golf was my outlet. While I was in school though, I did take a class that was in agricultural economics. Oh. And it was in that agricultural economics class that I first learned about commodities and about trading and hedging and speculating, et cetera. 
and we did a fictitious portfolio like typically happens in those classes. And I mean, I was a duck to water. I just loved what I was doing and I was putting myself through college. So I actually traded commodities to help pay for my school. In college, you were actually trading there to help underwrite your own education. So it was almost like a wheel turning, like the more investing you got, the better the education was and so forth and so on. So you graduate from Texas Tech and then you go to work for a couple of big name investment firms, right? So you take this experience that you had in college and you start applying it to the to the private sector. We're talking, you know, pretty established names, Oppenheimer, Payne, Weber, Prudential, places like that. But you decide to launch Kaz Investments um, in 2001. And I'm wondering, has that entrepreneurial spirit always with you? What was that catalyst for heading out on your own? The catalyst was probably twofold. The first is that I always liked the idea of being able to do what I really wanted to do as an investor, which mm. was to invest the capital. And at the same time, you know, to be able to grow a business. I'm very much about growth. The second part of it is actually the first link to my, my co-author of the book, Tony Robbins. And that is in 1991, I was up very late working and I saw this you know, this, this, this very large human being on TV <laughs> talking about, you know, this, this, this tape series that he had. Yeah. And I mean, I was a sponge. I mean, I read a hundred books when I was in college. I, I literally just am a voracious reader and I just love learning. Mm -hmm. And so I ordered the tape series and my wife and I went through that 30 day tape series on a cassette tape back in the good old days. Uh, for those of you who are under the age of 40, these were actual physical objects you listened to music and sound on. We'll go, I'll, po I'll post a picture online. Anyway, okay, so tape series. <laughs> so tape series, and one of the days that you go in that 30 day uh, tape series is you set a goal and you set a goal for one year, three years, five years, 10 years. And I set a goal to within 10 years have my own firm by the name of Kaz Investments and nine years and nine months later, I opened up the firm. And those are not a coincidence. I mean, it's a very fascinating thing about this one thing about setting goals, right? Because I think we all kind of do that consciously, subconsciously, but boy, it's the follow through, isn't it, right? It's the tools that you have to, I kind of, you know, circling back to the sports conversation too, right? It's kind of like practice and you go through repetition and you have some failure, but you get back up. It kind of applies here too, doesn't it? Oh, I, I think that's another reason why sports to me is such a great tie-in to investing, but just in life. I mean, I think every single child should compete, not just a little bit. I mean, compete. No yeah. participation trophies here. This is like, I need to get and win, right? Yeah. Because that is what sets people up for success. And you learn from your failures as much as you do from your victories. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it is the reality that most people have what Tony refers to as impotent goals. They have goals that, mm. yeah, they sound good on paper, but they don't have a big enough why. We all know of athletes who started off with absolutely nothing. They were dirt poor and they needed, not wanted, they needed to get out of the neighborhood. And so the way that their path was, was through sports. They try harder. And so as a result, they practice harder and perfect practice makes for ultimately a really, really good athlete. And that's true in the investment world is the bigger the why, the more we try. And ultimately, if you really want to do something special, you can, as long as you work harder than anybody else. You talked a little bit about being introduced to Toby Robbins, the, <laughs> the big figure on television, and doing the tape series and getting that understanding and sort of familiarity with him. How did you two actually meet? And how did that relationship evolve to the point where, uh, let's write a couple books together and see how that goes. What well, tell us about that journey. So... Tony became a client of our firm before I ever met him. 
<laughs> I had been to some of his live events and he was massively impactful. And I've said yeah. this on other podcasts, but other than my faith and other than my wife, nobody said more of an impact on my life than Tony Robbins. Hmm. That was before I met him. Yeah. Right. So he was introduced to us by um, a gentleman who used to work for Paul Tudor Jones. Paul Tudor Jones has been, you know, uh, has worked with Tony back since the late eighties and is a very dear friend of his. This gentleman became a client of ours. He introduced Tony's team to us. Tony became an investor. I had nothing to do with it, but mm -hmm. he really loved what we were doing. And so he, you know, through a couple of people, part of his team said, I want to meet this guy. I went to his house. We had a 14 hour meeting. Uh, that's a typical meeting with Tony. What? Not no joke. It's a legit. Oh I mean, it went until like three in the morning. This is not uh, attention, short attention span theater type stuff. No, no, it's immersion. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and the candidly, it's the best way to learn a sport. It's the best yeah. way to learn anything in life is through total immersion. So he learned everything he could about our business in the mm. course of that long meeting. We realized that there was a lot of things that we could potentially do together. That led him to becoming a shareholder in our firm. And one piece of that puzzle was that we really wanted to deliver a message to a much broader audience. And the book obviously was the germination of that idea. So the book is the holy grail of investing. And it features, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It features a number of in-depth interviews with some of the most recognizable names of investment. So what I'm interested in is how did you create the list of people that you wanted to reach out to and Related to that, was there anybody who were like, oh, I can't believe we got this person? So the list was compiled primarily based on our investment thesis. Mm -hmm. We're a very thematic investor. And okay. so when you start talking about what a book, you know, it's going to be around forever. So right, somebody's yeah. going to read it 30, 50 years from now, maybe. And I want it to not be irrelevant at that time. So we're a thematic investor in general. But so when we looked at the themes that we were going to highlight in the book, in the educational section of the book, and then also in the interviews, it was what themes do we believe are going to persist for the next decade plus? Mm -hmm. That led to the themes that then led who is the very, very best in that industry, in that sector. You know, if you're going to talk about enterprise software, you have to talk about Robert Smith. Robert Smith, Vista Equity Partners, he's the wealthiest African-American in the country. He has created, he created effectively the large enterprise software private equity firm, and he's the biggest and has an unparalleled track record. Same thing when you start talking about GP stakes, which is owning a stake in a private asset management firm. You know, Michael Reese, he created an industry basically. And so getting him was very logical. In the case of energy, you know, Bob Zork and Will Van Lowe, they run the number one and two largest private equity firms focused on energy. So it started to create itself. And Ian Charles from Arctos and some of the others, when we start talking about sports, you know, they were natural fits. You know, when you start talking about international, you know, Michael B. Kim. Michael B. Kim is the wealthiest person in Korea, and he is known as the godfather of Asian private equity. So, you know, the one that I was really kind of really happy he was willing to do it because he's done so much media over the years is Vinod Kosla. Vinod is a legend in the world of venture capital. You know, took $7 million and turned it into $4 billion in a company by the name of Juniper that nobody had ever heard of, Juniper Networks. Yeah, he did he okay one with the, that one. Yeah, he did just fine. But he was, you know, first money into Google, first money yeah. into, you know, some of the most prominent names that we know. So he, he gets so many requests and we're partners with them, good friends with him. And, and it's something I was just really honored that he, that all of these folks were willing to take the time and to be part of the, 
part of the project. I it's you know the word visionary, I think gets thrown around probably a little too easy, particularly in this day and age when new companies are trying to launch in so many different sectors all the time. But what strikes me is the list of folks that you just talked about. I mean, they are both described as visionary, but in practice, their vision has obviously produced enormous rewards for them, hasn't it? I mean, it's yeah, it pretty really long. has. You know, very few people can take, you know, a tremendous amount of skill and effort and to also create a vision for an outcome that they're committed to. You know, you think about David Sachs and the All In podcast. Not only was, you know, part of the early team at PayPal, did incredibly well there, very successful as a venture capitalist, but also has taken that media platform to a very significant level. You look at, you know, folks like David Golub and Private Credit. They saw what Private Credit was going to be before Private Credit became a thing. You know, NEA Associates, Tony, Tony Florence. I mean, they are the grandfather, if you will, as a firm of venture capital investing and growth investing. So they had to see a vision well beyond what's there now and what it's going to become in the future. And they all had that in common. Well, it also strikes me, hey, this is a sports business podcast, so I'm going to keep bringing it back to sports, right? It goes back to the very start of this conversation, right? Because you have to think about all the tools that have to fall into place and what those folks have to do. Because you talk about it all the time, right? Ideas are a dime a dozen, right? And it's okay to have a vision, and that's great. But how are you going to execute on it? What's the, what's the, how are you going to put your boots on the ground and take steps towards that goal? And that's really where I think it actually does come in that competition thing, that ability to fall down, learn from those mistakes, dust yourself off, get back up again and activate that vision that you have. That's what I think really separates those folks from some of the other people who have tried to do the similar thing or even had similar ideas. And that's one of the things in the interview section of the book that I think the audience will find so interesting because we talk through some of those challenges that they had to overcome that they, you know, how did you stay on track? with the vision that you were going to, to, to hopefully create. And then ultimately, how did you not get distracted by all the things that could have caused it? I mean, Ramsey Musalam is such a great example at Veritas Capital, the top performing private equity uh, manager for the last 20 years in, in, in almost every category. And literally very soon after they started their, their first fund, his partner committed suicide. <laughs> And he had to literally go out and convince every single one of the LPs not to put the key man clause in place and to stay with it. Yeah. And he did that. So he had to overcome enormous obstacles yeah. to now become one of the wealthiest people in this in the in the world, um, and and just truly a unique position in the private equity. Uh, asset class. It's trite. You know, we talk about grit, right, all the time. And I don't know if there's anything grittier than that, right? Having to go and talk to all the original investors to stay put. A significant part of this book is about pro sports and investing in pro sports, hence this conversation. Um, you go into depth talking about the sports industry and, and what makes franchises a compelling investment opportunity. You talked earlier about focusing on themes and thematic investing. And this is a pretty broad theme to, in the book. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how sports and teams first got on your radar and what struck you the most about them as, that, as an investment opportunity. The most common misunderstood concept by far is why we're invested in pro sports. Mm -hmm. It is literally something that most people never 
really understand because they assume it's just because it's cool and it's fun and it's high profile. And, and it is all of that. It, it is really <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, it is all that too. <laughs> but that's not why we did it. The reason we did it is the change of consumer behavior is something that's been a major theme of ours for the last decade. Mm -hmm. And cord cutting is an irrefutable reality. People, Absolutely. I literally had, I gave a speech to a thousand people and I said, I, I will challenge anyone to get up and make a compelling argument why cord cutting is going to stop <laughs> and people are going to go back to cable and broadcast and I'll pay you a thousand dollars if the audience thinks that you have a good case. Nobody was even willing to stand up and look silly. Yeah. Because everybody knows that yeah. cord cutting is yeah. going to be a reality. Inevitable. So that means live sports are going to be what advertisers need to advertise on. That's the only way to reach their audience. And 92% of the top programming is live sports. I mean, the Super Bowl was the most watched program last week. 129 billion viewers. I mean, you're talking about a whole lot of the planet watched yeah. that game yeah. and every advertiser got their message in front of that audience. So for us, the business model around sports is so advantaged because of the fact that you just, where else do you have a legal monopoly? And you also have the entire organization focused on one thing, which is to maximizing the fan experience to maximizing the longevity of the game. And then obviously that's gonna to yield to significant revenues, which yields significant profits for the owners of these businesses. But everybody is all about how do we take these fanatics, also called fans, <laughs> where the name comes from, yeah. and make them just so much a celebration of the human spirit of that sports brings out. I mean, where else in the world do you have people of all different you know, type, shape, sizes, and, uh, you know, philosophies get together unified to be able to just want to go nuts. Put your face paint on and head to the stands. Absolutely. Only yeah. in sports can you see that. And that's one of the great things about investing in something that's that resilient and that's persistent is we're adding enormous value to the consumer. And at the same time, obviously making a great investment. You also talk a little bit in the book about, you know, it's also a business that has almost no business development costs. Right, because the way that tradition and fandom is handed down through families, through friendships, through relationships and things like that. So that entire construct of a business operation is almost superfluous. I mean, I know company teams do it, but you know, it's it's just baked in. But sports almost, you know, somewhat famously don't play by the rules of a typical business. And, you know, we've had an opportunity to work with a couple of owners in the past who have assumed that they would take their skill in, in one business and apply it directly to sports. I mean, manufacturing and sports don't necessarily play by the same rules. We talk about the Anaheim Mighty Ducks when Disney owned them. Uh, Disney was out of their depth on that one. They didn't really understand how that kind of worked. So, so in your mind, as you consider pro sports investments, what do people need to pay attention to in order to minimize risk when they're considering an investment in sports? Where are those red flags? The number one red flag is if they look at the business as a hobby, not as a business. <laughs> okay. And if it's something that's just been, you know, given to them by their family or it's something to where they just have all the money in the world and they just want to say that they own a sports team, you know, they're not going to be a good partner for us. We're looking for people that really want to build a very successful business, do an incredible job for the consumer 
to be able to rally an entire city or state or multiple states in some cases. You know, I think about what Josh Harris is doing with the commanders. I mean, just straight after his transaction, the amount of enthusiasm in Washington and the surrounding areas is just unmatched mm-hmm. to where what it was before. Right. So we look for, and full disclosure, Josh is a, is, is a very, very good partner of ours you know, in, in the world of sports, but they know how to run a business successfully. He obviously co-founded Apollo. So he knows what he's doing running business. At the same time, he's hired the right people to understand consumer interfacing, how we can create this enormous value in the community, give back to the community, create that loyalty, at the same time, really be forward-looking about what a platform can do around the business, which can include real estate, it can include other franchises and other sports, as an example, and to be able to maximize the value for the fan, as well as for the players, obviously, they have to be really feel honored and, and supported, and then, of course, for the ownership group as well. I've been working in and around sports for about 30 years now. And I think what you're talking about strikes me as the change in ownership and expectations for what a sports franchise is during that time. Because you're right. The beginning, when I got into this business, we're talking about people who inherited it, you know, from family members. And they were like, okay, I'm in charge of a baseball team now. Or, you know, like I said earlier, people who made a lot of money in one area and tried to transition over and just sort of felt themselves out of their depth and just let it operate on its own. But the money and expectations now have led to, for lack of a better term, the professionalization of Mm -hmm. sports with a, you know, just getting butts in seats isn't it anymore because we got to reach international audiences. We got to reach, you know, to your point, cord cutting and streaming the business model change. We saw the collapse of regional sports networks associated with this. It's a dynamic industry right now. And so People are hiring folks who really have a better understanding of how to take advantage of those opportunities in ways that they had never done before. And technology is driving so much of sports and most owners really don't know that much about it if they've been in the business for longer than five or six years because it is literally changing as we speak. And they are like, how do I maximize the opportunity? And that's many, many cases why you know groups that we're involved in get brought in as partners to be able to add value all right so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break uh for our sponsor reflux gourmet we're with christopher zook he's the chairman of kaz investments and co-author with tony robbins of the book the holy grail of investing we're gonna be right back if you work in sports business then you know that we sometimes eat really badly stadium food isn't exactly known for its healthy properties and yeah it's gotten better there are more options available but generally speaking i'm not seeking out the vegetable plate on the concourse it's kind of ironic right i mean you're watching these world-class athletes push themselves to the very limits of human performance while shoving a plate of nachos loaded with shaved meat and a hot liquefied cheese that's a color that doesn't even appear in nature And while that food can taste so good going down, I almost always pay for it later on with heartburn and acid reflux. And that's when I turned to Reflux Gourmet. It's a great tasting, all natural way to treat acid reflux. And you can't even believe how good this stuff tastes, right? A chef in Napa Valley actually curated flavors like vanilla caramel and mint chip. And it's all natural. I mean, I actually recognize all the ingredients on the label. 
Uh, most importantly, though, it, it just works. Just one tablespoon of Reflux Gourmet, and I'm ready to go. Reflux Gourmet is available on Amazon, and if you use the promo code SPORTSBIZ, you'll get a 10% discount on your order. Okay, so we're with Christopher Zook. He's the chairman of Kaz Investments and co-author with Tony Robbins of the book, The Holy Grail of Investing. And Christopher, one of the investors of the many that you talked to for the book is Ian Charles. Now, I, you know, like I said earlier, I've been in this business for 30 years. I had not heard the name Ian Charles. I was not too familiar with Arcto's sports partner. So you can imagine I got page turning <laughs> in particular at that section. Um, I want to understand how... Ian and his business, Arctos Sports Partners, got on your radar and what separates him and his approach and the firm's approach from others who are now sort of diving into that, that deep end of the pool? You know, I laugh because the fact that Ian tells this story so much better than I do. Um, <laughs> Ian is a fascinating guy because he comes from the private equity industry and okay. he's really an, um, an innovator in the industry, but he's not a sports fan. And yet he runs the largest dedicated sports private equity firm in the world, but he's not a sports fan, mm. but he loves engaging with consumers and he loves the business of sports. But the reason that we got involved was because of the fact that they called us. I mean, we're one of the 200 largest private equity allocators in the world. And so we have big checks that we write. And so people naturally want our money. Um, and that's great because Hence this podcast, I mean, that's what we're happening right now. <laughs> that's right. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's why we get to look at so many really cool and interesting yeah. things and own businesses like we do, but they came into our office. We were one of the very first meetings and this is quoting him. Um, he was really excited. He was very confident. He knew I was a sports guy and he's like, this is going to go great. And at the end of it, he goes, that was not a good meeting. That didn't go well at all. Oops. And then he came back four months later and said, okay, I really feel good. We've given them tons of information and I am very highly confident. And he walked in, he says, I'm not confident at all. That did not go well, like I expected it to. And then seven months later, so almost a year and a half at this point into the conversation, we actually started really having traction with it because I was the skeptic. Okay. I mean, of my entire firm, I was the one, it's kind of my job to be the skeptic anyway. That's kind of my role. But you're the sports guy. Like you would think you might have sort but of- That's the thing. Toy. I looked at sports the same way as most people, yeah. which is, it's just a trophy asset. It's just, you lose money, but hopefully you sell it for more than you paid for it. And what I didn't appreciate was this entire, you know, matchup between our theme that we were already investing in, in a very significant way, the change in consumer behavior, and that sports is actually the best way to take advantage of that. Hmm. Once that light bulb went on for me, that's when I was like, okay, I got to learn a lot more because it's a business I'm not familiar with. But after another four or five months, we became an, a very significant partner with them. And it's been a fantastic relationship. And we're honored to do a lot of the really interesting things that we do with them. There's this passage in the, in the section with uh, Ian Charles, when you ask him point blank what you wish he, he wishes he had done differently when he gets started. And I thought his answer was fascinating, right? Because he said, I wish I'd hired more machine learning engineers to focus on data and AI. And I, you know, I, I kind of did a little bit of a double take because that, like I said, was not the answer I was expecting from him, right? So what does that say about data now and how intertwined it is both in your business but also in the business of sports, as we start to look at fans and, and monetizing the data that goes along with that. You know, it, data and AI and machine learning 
are at the forefront of everything in our business. We actually signed a five-year strategic partnership with Palantir to mm. overlay their machine learning and AI on every aspect of our business. Wow. The same is true in sports. If someone is not involved in data science, they are missing enormous opportunities to be able to you know, deliver a better result for their fans on the field or on the pitch, they are losing the opportunity to deliver a better experience for their fans as far as the overall entertainment concept. And then you also have enormous monetization opportunities because of that extra data science. And that is one of the reasons why Arctos in particular is brought in because, you know, I can, I'm not going to say names here, but specific owners have told me that they did not need a partner at all. They just flat out did not need one, but they really wanted to have somebody in their boardroom that actually understood all of this stuff that was able to look at the whole league, not just one team. Because until literally two years ago, there was no ability to own multiple teams in the same league for the obvious conflicts of interest reasons. So they, the, the leagues came up with, and all the leagues have approved it except for the NFL, which we hope is gonna happen soon, but it hasn't happened yet. The, the, the league said, okay, only if you meet all of these very strict criteria can you own more than one team in the league. I mean, for us to own a piece of the Astros, the Cubs, the Dodgers, the Padres, you know, the, the, the Giants and the Boston Red Sox, all in one league, Arctos sits at the center of that. And they get to see, obviously, maintaining confidentiality, but they get to see what's happening in all of the different ballparks and all of the different leagues around not just baseball, but also in basketball, hockey, et cetera. And so when you bring all that together to an owner, you can have a tremendous amount of value. You know, we help, you know, Arctos helped uh, the Sacramento Kings do a transaction that really increased their ability to reach their fans and to be able to, you know, be more profitable as a business. Those are things that would not have happened without the relationship of Arctos. Diamond Baseball Holdings is doing that in minor league baseball. I think they're up to 30 teams. They have interest or ownership stakes. And it's uh, it, it, and it speaks, I think, to how dynamic we talked about a little bit earlier, right? The sports industry is right now. There's lots of things happening, particularly in the terms of where the content's coming from, right? We've got women's sports are exploding. Uh, new leagues are launching all the time drone racing united football they're they're doing their thing um new models being tested professional lacrosse league has a, a traveling circuit rather than city-based things as you went through your research and interviews for the book i'm wondering what thoughts you have on where the next great investments for sports are going to come from Definitely all of the above. <laughs> and I mean, if you if you'd asked me two years ago, would I yep. own a piece of a Formula One team? I would have said, that's crazy. Why would I do that? <laughs> then I looked at the economics of yeah. it. And, oh my gosh, it's off the charts as far yeah. as the 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 type of person of uh, clientele and obviously the you know the the Netflix series you know did a lot for it, but it was really popular before that too. Same thing with women's sports. And you know, same thing with just lots of different types of things because it all comes back to the same thing. If the advertisers need great content and it needs to be live, well, we have a saying as a firm, find a need, fill a need, get paid. It's really simple. <laughs> I'm getting that tattooed on me somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> if you know that there's a need and there's people that would like to watch, and, and one of the things that COVID did to the world 
is, you know, there's only so much time you can spend binge watching this, that, and the other. <laughs> At some point, you want to actually get out and get in the community, or you want to have something that surprises you, because as many times as you watch Lord of the Rings, it's still the same ending. Every it's pretty time. much the same. Yeah. But yeah. you watched the Super Bowl last weekend and you go, oh my gosh, I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> Overtime, drama, etc. People need that in their life. They need that variety. They need that excitement. That doesn't come from just another great movie. They're wonderful, but it doesn't persist through time. And the advertisers need you to create that content. And so entrepreneurs will find a way to do it. Okay. So given the potential rewards, I think we've established, right? There's a huge opportunity here. Um, what advice do you have for those of us who maybe haven't earned their first billion yet? You know, underscoring the yet there, who want to get involved in sports from an investment standpoint? Who, but where should they head? You know, what advice do you have to get started? So there's there's only a few assets today that mm -hmm. are publicly traded. All right? right, there are a few. Um, they trade not great as far as valuations. They don't trade great as far as volume, just because of the fact that, you know, it's a tough asset for the average analyst mm -hmm. to understand. So there is, there are ways to do that. And there are opportunities that present themselves. The vast majority of it, as I mentioned, is only these, these few firms. You know, our two primary partners are Arctos, we've talked about right now, and Blue Owl Capital and the NBA, they're exclusive to the NBA. But there are ways for people to get involved in sports today in the private markets, but they have to be able to find access points. And it's totally self-serving, but that's one of the things that is an advantage that we have is because the, we're able to be Switzerland, if you will, we can invest with anyone in any of the different funds that make investments in professional sports. And so naturally that is a way for people to be able to get in that never would have thought that they were able to access and actually own a piece of a professional sports team. All right, the name of the book, is the holy grail of investing. I'm with Christopher Zook, who co-authored the book with Tony Robbins. He's also uh, the chairman of Kaz Investments and their chief investment officer too. Last question before we get to the last phase of this podcast, Christopher, is at the end of the day, what do you, what do you hope that people take away from the book? What's the ultimate message you want them to have? It's actually not that intimidating that everyone can invest in the private markets if they will take the time to learn how to do it. And that the holy grail of investing, which you know, is Markowitz won the Nobel Prize for the concept. Ray Dalio has obviously made that effectively a household name in the investment world. We want it to be a household name in the average investor's mind, because if you can take eight to 15 non-correlated or low correlated assets, blend them together, you can either get the same return with less risk, or if you're willing to take that risk, you can usually, if you know where to look and get access, you can actually make a much higher return. But we also want to make sure that people understand it because things are happening that are going to enable more people to invest for the first time mm. in alternative investments. A lot of people don't realize this, but in Congress right now, the House of Representatives has passed a bill that says that the SEC must create a test for someone to be able to become an accredited investor. Today, as we sit here, you have to either make a lot of money or have a lot of money or both in order to be able to access most of this. Well, I personally don't believe it's fair that a PhD who's wickedly smart, who happens to work for a nonprofit or somebody who's a police officer who's really intelligent, but they choose to serve, that they're not allowed to invest in the best things in the world. So it, that bill is right now in the Senate. We hope that it gets out of committee and then the president has said he will sign it. And then the SEC will pass that test or create that test 
and then people will be able to pass it and to be able to have access. We want this to be a reference point for them about what are all these different asset classes, how can you utilize them, and then learn from just truly these titans of the industry on what has allowed them to be very successful and what they should look for, investors should look for, when they are actually selecting who they're going to hire in the private asset world. All right, Christopher Zook, we're going to take all this industry knowledge that you have, all this vision, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you into the Reflex Gourmet lightning round. This is a series of questions. These are surprises. These are going to come out of nowhere. These are going to be left field, right field, I mean, center field, using the sports analogy. So are, are you ready? I'm totally ready. Bring okay. it. So here we go. All right, here we go. Uh, you are a lifelong Houstonian. What's something that the city should be famous for? but isn't the food quality and the diversity. We're the most diverse city in the country, more than New York. And if you want great ethnic food, come to Houston, Texas. All right, there you go. The Chamber of Commerce and the Restaurant Council. Thanks you. Uh, you are a proud Texas Tech Red Raider, uh, just like Patrick Mahomes. who just won his third Super Bowl. So if you were in Lubbock right now, where would you go to celebrate the win? Oh, wow. The Overton Hotel uh, is where kind of everything happens right after the games itself. It's a, just a great environment. That's where I would go. All right. Very good. Uh, your last name begins with a Z. Mine begins with an A. Would you like to know what it's like at the front of the line? <laughs> Every once in a while, I got that feeling in class because they would reverse it, and I was always at the front. That was great. So. It's pretty glorious, isn't it? Once you, when it you get there. It is nice, <laughs> especially when you're seven. I mean, it's a big deal when you're seven years old. Okay, what's a pro tip for surviving a book tour? You know, protect your voice, which I haven't done a great job of, but it is down. something to where, you know, protect your voice and ultimately just, you know, be, be willing to be real and, and let people see who you are. Very good. Okay. Last one. You're, you're on media all the time, man. You're on CNBC, Fox Business, Bloomberg. Uh, so in light of all those uh, appearances, um, how to do? No, you did great. This, is, this has been a lot of fun and I appreciate it. Christopher Zook, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer for Kaz Investments and co-author of the book, The Holy Grail of Investing with Tony Robbins. Thanks so much for spending the time with me. Happy to do so. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the One-on-One -on -one Sports Business Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed it, we always appreciate a subscribe, share, comment, or like. And don't forget, you can always find past episodes at abcpartners.com slash podcast. This podcast is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Dave Almey. And theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. Holmes.